Now, with war raging in Europe, the US is wasting no time in strengthening ties with its key allies across the globe, including Australia. The head of the US Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral John Aquilino, has paid a visit here, visiting key defence sites, including Pine Gap, and talking to the Defence Minister, Peter Dutton. Now, they've agreed to further bolster collaboration on cyber, space and defence initiatives, building on what's already established by the alliance. Now, then on Thursday this week, US President Joe Biden announced special powers to boost America's supply of rare minerals for defence equipment and electric vehicles. So in support of that, the US has agreed to help finance key minerals projects in Australia. Joining us to discuss developments in this relationship is Dimitri Sevastopol. Stopolo, sorry, Dimitri, Dimitri Sevastopolo, who's the US-China correspondent from the Financial Times based in Washington. Uh, he was actually on that visit by Admiral Aquilino, sat down with the top brass of the US Pacific Command and penned a series of excellent articles. Thanks for joining us, Dimitri, on Radio National. Hi, Kylie. And sometimes I get my own name wrong, so don't worry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I did practice, <laughs> but I still, yes, I promise I'll get it right next time. Um, <laughs> listen, uh, you were there. You looked into, you know, the Admiral's eyes. Uh, tell us how important at the moment by their reckoning is Australia to US ambitions in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, and, and thank you for having me. I mean, I think Australia is has always been very important. And this trip showed that it's increasingly becoming critical to the US strategy of working more with allies to counter China. And you, you can see how seriously the Biden administration is taking the relationship with Australia by the fact that Aquilino spent six days in Australia from, you know, Darwin to Brisbane to Canberra and, and then to Alice Springs for a couple of days. So they really invested a lot in this trip. And it wasn't just Admiral Aquilino. He was joined in Pine Gap by the head of U.S. Space Command, General Dickinson, and the deputy head of U.S. Cyber Command, uh, General Moore. And it's really rare for three senior uh, U.S. military officials to kind of gather like that in a foreign country. So I think that kind of tells you how important Australia is for the US. Let's um, speak more about space. Um, one of your articles you mentioned, Australia is all about that phrase, location, location, location. Why is that? Can you tell us why Australia is so critical now for the US's plans when it comes to space and, and cyber security? Yeah, so when, when you fly into Alice Springs, uh, you look down on Pine Gap, which is this essentially a joint CIA-Australian um, facility that helps uh, monitor, track, operate uh, surveillance satellites over the Indo-Pacific and particularly over China. So it, it's one of the you know, biggest such locations in the world, and it's critical for the kind of US, UK, Australian Five Eyes intelligence network when it comes to China. Um, you know, they were there talking about space because, you know, you see a lot of uh, ink spilled in newspapers and on, on radio shows about the Chinese Navy becoming bigger than the U.S. The Chinese Coast Guard is now bigger than the U.S. Coast Guard. And, and lots of other ways in which the Chinese military is expanding rapidly. You know, one thing that doesn't get talked about as much because a lot of the information is secret is that actually China's making huge strides in space. And so when I sat down with, with the three, um, you know, two generals and one admiral, one of the things that General Dickinson said to me was just five years ago, China had roughly 100 satellites in orbit in space. And that number today is 500, which is a huge increase. And, you know, some of those satellites are for commercial purposes, but many of them are for military purposes. 
Uh, and you've had things that have happened in the last year that have just highlighted the advances China's made. So just to, to name two, you know, the FT we wrote last year that China had sent a hypersonic weapon around the world and fired a missile from that weapon as it flew over the South China Sea, which is something the US military does not even know how to do. So that was one huge wake-up call, and that's a, it was a space-based weapon. And then secondly, a, recently a Chinese satellite that was in orbit came off its orbit went to another orbit, grabbed an old Chinese satellite that's not working anymore, took it and deposited it in another orbit that's called the graveyard orbit for, for essentially broken satellites. The U.S. concern is that if there was a conflict between the U.S. and China over Taiwan, for example, could a Chinese satellite pop over to another orbit, grab an American reconnaissance satellite or an Australian satellite, and then essentially destroy it. So there are all of these things happening in space. And I think, you know, these three, the three military brass were there in Australia to talk to their counterparts at Pine Gap to kind of discuss some of the things that they could do to enhance their efforts to counter China in space and, and using cyber as a way to make sure that all of the communications that go via space are even more secure. Dimitri, from space to earthly matters, on, on Thursday, Joe Biden invoked their special powers to try to boost the domestic supply of rare minerals, the kind of minerals that are crucial for defence equipment and electric vehicles. Uh, and so now Washington has committed to help finance key minerals projects in Australia. Does that, I guess, show us that the US is trying to prevent a situation similar to that uh, in which Europe finds itself currently in with dependence on Russian gas and oil? Because after all, China is a key producer of rare minerals, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. I mean, essentially, you know, over the last couple of decades, China has, you know, secured a kind of a lock hold on the rare earths industry, both in terms of mining, but more even in terms of processing. And you know, the rare earths that it produces and processes are used from everything from smartphones to precision-guided missiles. And the Pentagon, you know, relies on a lot of those rare earths, or the defense companies supplying the Pentagon, to make the different weapon systems. So there's been a huge focus on that. But when the Biden administration came in a year ago, they said, you know, we need to focus on securing and strengthening U.S. supply chains, making sure that we're not vulnerable in, in the States. And one of the things they talked about, one of the four categories was rare earths. And I think given, you know, Australia's strength in the rare earths industry, it was kind of natural for the U.S. to to team up and say, you know, we can help each other here. And the byproduct of that is that we, we wean ourselves off China. So I think it's, a, it's another example of where Australia is, is kind of working with the U.S., uh, building alliances to counter the rise of China and making sure that the Western countries and countries in the Indo-Pacific uh, are not held at threat by Beijing. And presumably there are implications too for the US, US supply or pressure on supply, um, given the sanctions on Russia's export, exports currently. Uh, that, does that mean that the US is needing to spread, if you like, where it sources all of these key elements of, of maintaining and building a defence industry? I think there's definitely part of it is is due to what's happening in Russia and concerns about not being able to get certain kind of minerals and also um, some which come from Ukraine where it's just going to be more difficult to import things. But I think it's actually more of a long-term thing which is geared towards China and maybe Ukraine has exacerbated it or given it a bit more impetus. But this is really about making sure that 10, 15, 20 years down the road that China no longer has this almost monopoly on the rare earths industry. 
Dimitri, I'm not sure whether this news broke while the US commanders were here, but you'll be aware, of course, that the Solomon Islands, it seems, is on the verge of signing an agreement which would see a Chinese naval base um, within the islands. Did did that, had that already happened when, when you were here? Did US commanders have a view on it? Uh, it did happen while we were there. Uh, they didn't talk about it on the record, I think, because it had just happened and um, it wasn't it wasn't clear to them or they hadn't seen the document that the Australian government had said was was genuine. So there were no public comments on that. But it, but the both the US military and the State Department are extremely concerned about uh, that development because they think it's possible that in the future Solomon Islands will allow China to build a naval base, uh, you know, northeast of Australia, and then essentially gives China much, much more ability to project both naval power and air power in that part of the Pacific. So I think there's a lot of um, attention on that, and it definitely raised eyebrows when it happened. Now, on another note, President Biden has just released uh, the revised US nuclear declaratory policy. Uh, seeing as you're there, can, can you tell us about that declaration, how it's been received? So um, President Biden, when he was vice president of Barack Obama, and then also during the presidential campaign in 2020, talked about reducing the role of U.S. nuclear weapons in U.S. military uh, policy. Um, you know, some uh, arms control advocates wanted him to declare that the U.S. had a no-first-use policy for nuclear weapons. That really concerned allies who rely on the U.S. nuclear umbrella, or, or what in jargony terms is called extended deterrence. Um, then there was concern that Biden might not do that, but he might declare something called sole purpose, which would say the sole purpose of U.S. nuclear weapons is to do X, Y, and Z. And critics said, you know, if you lay out exactly when and when you would not use nuclear weapons, it actually gives too much information to the Russians and to the Chinese, and you embolden potentially your adversaries. So Biden steered away from the major changes that he could have made and allies worry that he might make. And essentially uh, what he is going back to is the policy that Barack Obama had, which is that U.S. nuclear weapons uh, will fundamentally only be used if there's a nuclear attack on the U.S. Uh, and its or its allies, and possibly in other extreme circumstances, which could be a huge conventional attack, you know, non-nuclear attack on, you know, the U.K. or Australia or or, or Germany or whoever. Um, so I think you know the allies are um, happy that he didn't take the more drastic changes that he had been considering as he conducted this review and are probably think it's probably the best possible outcome given um, the way that Joe Biden was thinking about this. I mean, is this also all this um, consideration of deterrence and language also about China, given I think China's due to quadruple its nuclear arsenal to a thousand potentially by the end of the decade? So I guess it's a matter of that and of course the war on Ukraine influencing thinking now. Totally. I mean, I think whatever the odds were that Biden would um, implement a big change in declaratory policy um, changed significantly when the Pentagon said, I think it was in October, that they forecast that China would quadruple the number of warheads by the end of the decade, which is, which is a huge shift in, in China's approach to nuclear weapons. And then as the Ukraine conflict started and Russia... You know, if you remember in the early days, um, Putin seemed to put his nuclear forces on high alert, although he was a little bit vague uh, and did a few other things. And there have been kind of vague nuclear threats coming out of Moscow. So I think that was another final nail in the coffin 
uh, when it came to uh, declaratory policy and, and meant that it really, even if Biden would have liked to have shifted things, I think he was he was probably handicapped in that he couldn't really act given what China and Russia are doing. Oh, you've been the China correspondent for the FT uh, for some time before pivoting to this US-China role. I mean, how do you think Xi Jinping, do you have any insights into how Beijing is now viewing the conflict in Ukraine? We know earlier on there was an expectation apparently from Moscow of uh, some backing from Beijing. That that doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah, so far when, when we talk to um, you know officials who have access to the, the intelligence on this, they say they're there's no sign yet that China has provided Russia with weapons, which, you know, Vladimir Putin asked, asked China to provide a, a number of weapons, including drones. That doesn't seem to have happened. So what, um, you know, Western officials and kind of U.S. allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific are looking at now is to see whether China is going to provide any kind of financial or economic support to Russia that would help it sustain the, the pressure that's coming from sanctions. It's not clear that they have so far. But certainly U.S. officials are watching it very closely and they have, you know, warned China and, and Joe Biden actually said this specifically to Xi Jinping when they spoke on the video call recently that there would be consequences if China tried to bail out Russia. So people are still very attuned to the possibility that it could happen. And I think China is in quite a difficult spot because they don't want to undermine their, you know, essentially best big friend. Uh, at the same time, they don't want to do things that would uh, result in the U.S. slapping secondary sanctions, uh, as they're called, on China. So they're in a very delicate position, I think. Yes, best big friends are important at this time of, it seems, <laughs> this time in world history. Just quickly, a lot of people earlier on had been speaking about the implications for Taiwan if Russia can do something like this to Ukraine and watch out what's Beijing going to do. Um, is that just a, a, a reminder not to be complacent, do you think? Well, that was one of the messages that Akalino um, sent when I interviewed him. He said that, you know, people tend to think of these threats from authoritarian regimes as being abstract. But actually, Ukraine shows you that it's not an abstract threat. You know, you have people dying in Ukraine, blood is being spilt, uh, human lives are mm. being decimated. And when you more, think about more Taiwan... More real by the moment. More real. And, and Taiwan, you know, that could happen in the future in Taiwan. So people shouldn't just assume that China won't do something and should be more tuned to the possibility that they could. And certainly... Dimitri, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm get, we're going to have to leave it there. We're running out of time. But thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Dimitri Sevastopolo is the US-China correspondent for the FT.